Welcome back, baseball fans. This is episode seven of Rounding Third, the baseball podcast. I am one of your hosts, James, joined by my lovely counterpart, Max. Max, you want to say hello? Yeah, how's it going, everybody? Glad to be back for episode seven. Uh, Had a pretty successful episode six, but having fun doing this. Um, Looking forward to, to baseball. Yeah, we are. We're definitely cruising. I think we're starting to find our stride a little bit. Um, you know, it's most important, I think, for us now is kind of trying to grow the game and just enjoying it, enjoy talking about the baseball. Um, as we've said previously, we're hopefully looking to expand. Uh, hopefully the season gets started when it should and we can uh, jump up to two episodes and, and get going. That's a, that's a big if, though, a big yeah, if on the season. It's, it's kind of funny we, we chose to start a baseball podcast at probably the deadest period of baseball news in the past past 10 years with really nothing going on and not really a possibility of much new, news going on or baseball news in general. That's how much we love the game. That's what I that means. So. <laughs> Even when it's dead, uh, just keep pushing. But hopefully uh, I think we are maybe coming around to the other side. Um, actually, we've got a good bit of – some some current news, some segments to dive into, um, but a little bit of lockout stuff, nothing as extensive as we had in our last update on the lockout situation. So I don't know if you want to uh, yeah, lead us in yeah. a little bit, Max. Yeah, I can kick it off. I think, first of all, um, shout out to all our, our viewers from last episode. It was one of our best performing episodes, actually our best performing episodes after the first one. And so I think a lot of people liked kind of the current news mailbag that we did kind of hitting a bunch of topics so we're gonna do something kind of similar today we do have you know some random news to cover um nothing crazy of course but we'll we'll kick it off with the lockout so last time we talked about the lockout they the players union and the mlb met for the first time and it was pretty acrimonious and didn't go very well and a tweet just an hour before we're recording this on thursday um, Major League Baseball and MLB Players Association plan to meet Monday when the union is expected to present a counteroffer to the league's proposal last week. Sources tell ESPN, this is a tweet by Jeff Passan. And so this would be the second meeting between the sides since MLB locked out players on December 2nd. So I guess it's good news that they're continuing to meet. Obviously, that was expected. That's the whole point of the bargaining and negotiating, but it's good to see that there's another meeting on the schedule and, you know, maybe some, some positive news can come out of this. Right. I, you know, our last update was that the MLB had dropped their first proposal. Um, and since then really nothing. So of course, as this negotiation is unfolding, the next step was, all right, what do the players now respond? I can only imagine that, uh, meeting on Monday, will not be productive, similar to the last one. It, now, productive, maybe not the right word choice. I don't think that we're going to get a handshake and baseball's back on Monday. I, I hope I'm wrong. I very much hope I'm wrong. Um, I think it's more likely, though, that then the MLB can take some of that feedback and come with a counter to the counter, and now we're really starting to negotiate and uh, hone down on what the CBA could be and hopefully inch closer and closer to uh, getting baseball back, which we all need. Yeah, I mean, this was never supposed to be a quick process. It was never supposed to be an easy process for either sides that had a lot of demands and a lot of sacrifices that would need to be made in order to get uh, a plan together that fits for both both sides. So 
you know, I, all we can really do is hope for the best. All we can really do is pray that baseball will come back um, sooner rather than later. We're starting to get to the point, um, kind of the end of January timeframe, where it's possible that pitchers and catchers reporting could get delayed. Um, and if it goes even further, spring training can get pushed back and maybe even the season. I, I doubt it, but, you know, there's no progress being made as of now. Now, I will, I'll speak to that a little bit, Max, um, and I'll speak to that knowing I have a little bit of a source, maybe a little ear-to-the-ground inside info. Um, have a source who, obviously, because all this lockout is still scorching, remain anonymous, um, but is on the general management side of Major League Baseball. Uh, and the source has let me know that owners are actually starting to get concerned, which I think is good. We want leverage we want some pressure to you know pressure cooker you want to get some things going want impetus to sign this deal so ownership's getting a little uh concerned realizing that oh okay we really are as you said approaching pitchers and catchers reporting which means spring training get delayed all of those games that revenue so the owners are in a position where they realize okay we may lose more revenue and of course they're really uptight about the revenue because coming off of 2020 in that covid season they lost a boatload of money and they're still trying to recoup that so that's definitely one of the things that has the owners worried the other thing that the source told me is that the owners are worried similar to we had talked in previous episodes of the 94 lockout but after that happened a bunch of classic baseball guys the older style baseball fans a lot of them walked away from the sport because they said you stole this from me for a year because you guys are bickering about money, essentially, you know, all uh, paraphrased. But and there's some concern that could happen again. Yeah. And there's also this unique kind of dynamic that's at play here. And the fact that the owners after a covid season suffered so much loss and fans not showing up, players opting out, shortened season, less games, shortened playoffs all these different types of things that were hurting the owners monetarily that they can't really afford, no pun intended, to um, to to suffer another lockout and miss more opportunities to make money. Now, and what I do want to say with all that being said is that the source did also tell me, though, there is kind of a, a general consensus among the ownership that if there's not an agreement re- reached around mid-February, mid to late February, which would be when... Um, pitchers and catchers report and we start to uh, really gear into uh, spring training that the ownership may actually then dig their their heels in and really put their foot down and say fine we'll do another 1994 and we'll lose this revenue but then we're going to stand here and, and wait and hold our position basically until we get what we want and take negotiating almost out of the out of the table of course we hope um, that doesn't happen but it sounds like that could be a possibility. Um, so got to be on the lookout for that. Hopefully we get something moving. I guess we'll just have to, to cross our fingers and hope that, you know, it gets resolved as soon as possible. Um, moving on from the lockout, we actually, this has become a trend on this podcast. Every week it seems like somebody new retires. Um, we have Kyle Seeger. Cameron Mabin. Cameron Mabin, my guy. <laughs> And then, of course, John Lester last week. But this week we have another uh, another veteran of the of the game, fifteen seasons in the league. Uh, Melky Cabrera officially closes the book on his pretty good pretty good career. Um, the one time All Star, 
uh, kind of another trailblazer, played for eight different teams in 15 years, uh, primarily the Yankees at the beginning of his career, and then the Royals, White Sox, Blue Jays, Pirates, Indians. Um, was actually able to win the 2009 World Series in New York, and in 2012 with his one year with the Giants, he was his sole All-Star appearance, and he also won All-Star Game MVP, going two for three with a homer. But that same season, he was also banned for 50 games at the end of the season for a positive testosterone test, which he didn't even really refute in his statement in 2012 when he said it. And so he basically admitted to using performance-enhancing drugs. Career 285 hitter, uh, almost 2,000 hits, 150 home runs, 101 stolen bases. Hasn't played a game, hasn't played in the MLB since 2019 when he was a member of the Pittsburgh Pirates, but has been playing in the Dominican. And he was um, playing winter ball and was um, on the New York Mets minor league roster, but hasn't seen a big league at bat since 2019. I think, you know, what's interesting about this is really reviewing the stats and looking at the career of Melky Cabrera holistically. It's interesting because, quite frankly, I think his name is a little bit bigger than maybe his career resume, if you will. I mean, you say Melky Cabrera, you know, I would, I would have argued that he was probably the biggest of the, of this month straight, which by the way, it's been one full month where every episode of rounding third and another player retires. I would argue Melky was the biggest of the group by name. Of course, looking at resume, I think John Lester blows him out of the water. Um, obviously Melky, I don't, think there's a conversation there at all for him to be in the Hall of Fame. So there's another segment for you, Hall of Fame or not, Melky Cabrera, no. <laughs> I, I see, I, I do kind of disagree. I think John Lester might be a little more notable. Um, maybe it's because he, you know, played up, played in the league until last year. But I also just think he had more notoriety kind of being on the big stage and performing extremely well in the postseason. But I would probably put Melky Cabrera above Kyle Seeger. Um, and Cameron Maben. Yeah, I, th- I think he definitely deserves that. I mean, he was an everyday player, and not just an everyday player. He was a guy you didn't really want to pitch to, right? That was the guy you want to throw around, especially when he was some of those orders. Um, you know, I think particularly um, different times in his career where it's just like, yeah, let's let's not throw the ball to him. Let's keep it off the plate, and if we walk him, we walk him. Um, but still, it's it's been crazy to see as we've really grown up, Max, these players that have been kind of everyday names of the game, staples of baseball, kind of just dropping like flies, quite frankly, for a lack of a better terminology. Yeah, I mean, Mel- Melky Cabrera joined, uh, or joined the Yankees in 2005, midway through the season, before his 21st birthday, um, and to last 15 years in the MLB, playing for a bunch of different teams is a great accomplishment. I mean, spent most of the beginning of his career with the Yankees um, before being traded to the Braves and then moving around to the Royals and eventually to the Giants where he actually batted 346 and had a 516 slugging, 390 on base, um, obviously before he tested positive. So take that as you will. But a great career. I mean, you know, to play 15 years in the major leagues for anybody is, is an amazing co- accomplishment. And, and Melky Cabrera is definitely one of those players that, you know, you grew up playing with him on MLB 2K back in the day, and now MLB The Show. Um, so it, it is pretty crazy to see some of these players call it quits. 
Yeah, you know, it's sad because you're losing them, but I also look, uh, and in my opinion, the future of baseball has never been brighter. I mean, the young stars we have now are just electricity. You know, I look at your Tatis, your Soto, your Wander Franco, Rosarina. I mean, uh, names and names and names, Shohei Itani. I mean, we've got a lot of good baseball to watch. It's just hard to watch the guys that I fell in love with the game, um, you know, fell in love with the game watching them, and now they are out of the game. Speaking of Shohei Otani, um, his pitching staff in L.A. is getting a lot of pitchers, especially recently. What do you think about this? Well, I think, you know, we debated talking about this, honestly, and I think we had to because through our seven episodes now, we have hit a good amount of time into talking about how the Angels are, are a travesty for what they've done to Mike Trout and Otani. Um, but we do have to give them credit that it is not for lack of trying. As we've identified, clearly that team doesn't need more offense. It's got Anthony Rendon, it's got Mike Trout, it's got Otani. I mean, you've got bats for days. They needed pitchers. Um, it seems like management has figured that out and is finally listen, um, listening. So with their, they had 20 draft picks this year, uh, and with those 20 draft picks, they drafted 20 pitchers. Uh, in addition to drafting 20 of 20 pitchers, they signed four free agent pitchers, um, notably Syndergaard, uh, would be the biggest on that list, uh, in my opinion. And then they also signed an additional seven international pitching prospects. So that is a total addition <laughs> of 31 new arms to that team. Of course, a lot of those are going to be younger guys. They're going to be buried in the minors for a couple of years, but they're at least trying to get some arms there and hopefully maybe win, maybe make a run at the AL West finally. Yeah, I mean, look, it's not a secret that the Angels need pitching. People have been saying that for years, seeing Trout's success and their lack of performance or production and even lack of ability to even get into the postseason. Um, so, I, you know, this, this is what they need. Let's hope that, you know, one of these pitchers turns out, one or two of these pitchers turn out to be, you know, good prospects that they're able to utilize at the big league level. Um but this doesn't mean that they're going to get all these new arms in the upcoming season. But it is good to see that they're investing in what they need, and, and hopefully this can help turn that turn that team with a lot of star power around. Yeah, I think it's a good sign for Angels fan. As you said, it's not necessarily like if you're a fan of a different AL West team, I necessarily wouldn't be you know freaking out. Um, probably not going to have to really deal with many of these guys for – the next couple of years. But if you're an Angels fan, it's at least nice to see that management and ownership is kind of like, okay, let, let's try and fix this problem. So good on the Angels. Looks like they're starting to take steps. Um, I know we're going to preview the divisions um, in future episodes for this season and give predictions, but I still don't think this pushes them over uh, the edge, but we'll have to see. No, definitely not. But but I do think you know they they obviously they got all these different pitchers. But Noah Syndergaard's a good a good player, um, and so they they are at least getting some pitchers that can hopefully provide immediate value to the organization. And I think Syndergaard and pairing him with Hotani and obviously the, the the bats around the outfield and infield and Rendon and Trout, I, I think they have a chance to be productive. Um, you really never know what can happen, but. You know, I, I don't see them making a big turn this year. Now, I will say, I think the the way the Angels could play this close to home and just really embrace everything that the Angels organization stands for is to have maybe four or five of these draft pick pitchers turn out and be really elite prospects and then go ahead and trade them 
for an offensive stud and then get shelled again. I mean, that would be the most Angels story I think you could possibly have as they draft the pitchers, they find the prospects, and then they trade them for another bat to then just get outscored 13 to 12 and miss the yeah. playoffs again. And another thing another thing I think they need to be a little bit worried about is you're drafting all these pitchers, and obviously that's been your need, but a lot of these pitchers aren't going to be available for a couple years. And yes, you have Mike Trout under contract for an insane amount of time, probably the rest of his career, but that doesn't mean he's going to perform at such a high level for the rest of his career. You know, this is a guy who's already won three MVPs or whatever it is, already been a multi-time all-star, already proved he's one of the best players in the league, one of the best players of all time. So it's about maximizing your ability to perform the postseason when these players are at their maximum capabilities. And obviously, if Otani stays healthy, um, I mean, that guy can do it all. But if you got a healthy Otani, a healthy Trout, a 2019 Rendon back, Syndergaard pitching at the level that he has for the Mets, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of things that could happen with this team. They can make some noise, you know, if, if some things go their way. They can make some noise, but I think, um, with that being said, that's probably enough time devoted to the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, which everyone make sure you write that down because they do not play in Los Angeles. Drives me nuts. <laughs> um, but, Max, I don't know. I think the next next topic that we kind of have planned is a little bit of a scorcher, a little bit debated. Um, so I don't know if you want to lead that in and maybe give me your thoughts. Yeah, so this is kind of an interesting topic. It's not really strictly about the MLB. It's about, you know, maybe a new implementation that might be coming in the future. So for for those people that aren't aware, the Atlantic League is, is kind of this American professional league that's independent from the major leagues. But they did sign a contract with the MLB in the past several years to kind of implement new rules, experiment with different things. And in particular, in the last year, um, they tried automatic strike zones, so basically no umpire. Um, this ABS system will will read the pitches and call whether it's a ball or strike. So basically, it's an automated strike zone. And and they also tried something where they moved the the mound back, but but we don't need to worry about that for now. Um, but with this automated strike zone system, where the balls and strikes are determined by tracking software and relayed to an earpiece wearing umpire behind the plate. So there's still an umpire behind the plate who then announces the calls proved successful. There was, there was some doubts about some of the calls, um, some of the breaking ball calls apparently, but overall they called it a success. And by December, 2019 months after the system debuted in the Atlantic league, the MLB umpires union actually agreed to a deal with the MLB officials which is something the players should do um, to cooperate with the implementation of a digital strike zone over the coming years in the MLB in exchange for significant increases in compensation and retirement benefits. But this has now gone beyond the Atlantic league. The MLB is expanding its automated strike zone experiment to the highest level in the minor leagues, the AAA. And so MLB is actually actively recruiting such employees to operate a system um, that can that does this ball and strike calling people kind of behind the scenes who can make sure it's running properly and they're recruiting for a dozen different teams and so the MLB is is really pushing for this and Rob Manfred even said he expects it to be in the MLB eventually and this is kind of where the league is going 
and the MLB is planning on using it in some spring training games on top of now putting it in the highest level of, of baseball outside of the major leagues. So it's, it's going to be an interesting change. I mean, I, it's a pretty controversial topic. What do you think, James? You know, I'm, I'm actually pretty split on this. I'm sure we've all watched a game where you're like, oh, my God, uh, particularly I'm coming right after you, Angel Hernandez. Generally, when I watch a game that Angel Hernandez is behind the plate, I just wonder, what is he seeing that I'm not seeing? Like, I, you, we just have completely different strike zones. He sees balls that I don't – I mean, it, so when you have an umpire that, that misses these routine balls and can't provide any level of consistency – and let me just hit on that first. It it's To me, it's more important not that – Every, you know, they have the, the Twitter accounts that rate umpire success and all, you know, 98% um, correct calls. To me, it's most about consistency. If you want to call the strike zone six inches off the plate, just do it for both teams. Then it remains fair. That's, so I think that's what's nice about the computer softwares, even if it, if it can't pick up, you know, let's just say a 12-6 breaking ball or 12-6 curveball with eight inches. Like for some reason, that trips the computer. At least that should be the case um, for both calls. So in that regard, it's nice to maybe up the consistency, but I worry about it. I mean, you think about a World Series game, one-run game, bottom of the ninth, you know, the, the whole the childhood scenario that you dream up. Do you want that game ended because the computer had a glitch or the computer made a spot? I would rather be able to at least blame a human empire. Plus, the other thing I think about is when you have two strikes as a batter, there's sometimes where, like, if that baseball is within, you know, two inches of anywhere in the box, the umpire should call that a strike. If you are not swinging and you will watch a baseball come that close to the strike zone on two strikes, it should be expanded. It should be called. Yeah, so I'm, so I'm going to push back a little bit here. Um, and I, I, I see what you're saying. Like, yeah, the moment you always dreamed of, you don't want it to come down to a computer glitch, but you also don't want it to come down to somebody making the wrong call. Like, think about um, when when that Tigers pitcher nearly threw the perfect game, but uh, the, before you could review plays at first. Uh, he did throw a perfect who, game. Who was the umpire then? Yeah, Jim, yeah, Jim Joyce. Jim Joyce. Yeah, so I think everyone. back to Armando Galarraga's uh, near-perfect game when Jim Joyce, you know, basically called the play safe at first when it was clearly out, bottom nine, two outs. I mean, that sucked. He threw a, he threw a perfect game and didn't get credit for it. That's what happened. That's what happened. Right. There's no other way to look at that. But my point being that, like, bad calls happen. And I think the reason that this ABS system would be implemented is because it's not going to glitch. Like, it's just not going to – sure, it's possible. But with the software that they implement, it's going to be fully tested to the point where it's not going to make big mistakes. And there's, there's also going to be people on site that – if it does make a big mistake, they, they should be able to overrule it in some way. But I think the odds of a of a umpire with the human inconsistencies that exist would be much more likely to make a bad call in those situations than an automated system that only makes sure it's a ball or striker, only makes sure um, he's out at first or whatever. So what do you, you know, I, I do think that's a very fair point. Um, and I see the consistency in it actually probably being a way smaller margin of error of a glitch compared to Jim Joyce having no clue what's going on in baseball. Uh, which, by the way, Jim Joyce, if you're listening, click off this. You should be the most hated game, man in the history of baseball. And I genuinely believe that. Um, 
But, you know, I, I, and I don't want to mince them because it is so hard to throw a perfect game and to lose it because some guy just wants to go home and can't focus on a baseball for a second. And I will say, unfortunately for him, reviews weren't around. It would have been great if that happened today. It would have been a quick review, game over, but should have never been in that position. What do you think about the – I could see this maybe being an argument, not an argument I would throw around, but maybe from some older baseball fans of losing the connectivity to the game in the past, right? So like in Babe Ruth days, there was obviously no computers, you know, so an umpire has always been a focal part of a baseball game. And while there still would be there, they obviously don't have any, you know, what do you think to that argument? Right. I mean, like you said, the the umpire's still going to be there. There's still going to be a person there, but they're not going to be providing, you know, their opinion on the call. It could basically be anybody standing there as long as they can listen through the earpiece and, and make the call. I mean, I get it. I get it. I see what people are saying, um, just that you're kind of losing that human element. And I think that's what people have said in almost all sports, right? You know, the refs are a part of the game. They're there to make the calls. Um, But there has been a lot of fan support for this. You know, once you look at Fox or ESPN that show these strike zones on the screen, I think there's been a lot of push for, well, why couldn't they just make the call based on this? Why do we need somebody there giving their informed opinion about it, but but you never know really whether it's the right call. And it's kind of tough. You know, I haven't been able to watch any of the minor league games, the single A or the Atlantic League games where this is being tested out. So it would be interesting to see from a fan's perspective what it looks like on the screen, what it looks like um, while you're at the game, and also from a player and coach perspective, what that would be like and how it would change the dynamic between the umpires and the players or coaches. Because the umpires are no longer the ones really making the call. So would there be less arguing? I mean, probably because it's not the umpire's fault if the call seems wrong. And also the call is probably right. So should you argue in the first place? I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all the points there, and I think it probably is more accurate. Um, I think the thing that I still am hung up on, and this is probably the incorrect thinking, truthfully, from me, but it is that the human factor of, like, you should not be taking a two-strike baseball with the, that close to the strike zone. And I understand like the in the letter of the law and the fairness of the game – using the software that keeps at, tracks it accurately and like, you know, and it is going to call it a ball. If it's a quarter inch off of the plate, that's probably good. Cause that's the accurate call. But the way that I was always taught and the way that I thought baseball was always played is like swing away, man, don't get a backwards K. So you lose that element of it. That's probably not the best argument of it, but I will say I'm extremely excited to see it in AAA. Cause as you were saying, it's really going to be important. How does this change the game? As long as it doesn't fundamentally change the game, then I think it probably is a positive change. So being able to see that at the AAA level where you have future MLB players, you have current MLB players down there, they're run like professional teams, they're revenue generating. It's going to be the best example we can have of, is this going to work or not for the major league level? Yeah, and honestly, I think this is something that people just need to start accepting that's it, that it's going to be implemented in the MLB. I mean, you look at how technology has changed over the, the course of just the past decade, 
and how people have wanted the calls to be right. That's why you're seeing more challenges in the MLB, more reviews, is because it's now possible because of all the angles that the camera can capture, and people want the call to be right. And so I guess we'll just have to see. You know, I imagine there's going to be this kind of new school versus old school way of thought, how you feel about these changes, but it'll be interesting to see. It's going to be a big change to the game. I don't think it'll fundamentally change the game in any way, but it'll be interesting to see how all these different dynamics come into play and and how people perceive or accept this, this change that's going to happen. Yeah, we will we will keep everyone updated um, and try and watch a couple of those AAA games and um, and just get the consensus somewhere around mid season um, and and just report how it's going so far and what the outlook is of this becoming a staple of the MLB games. And I'll say, as long as it keeps Angel Hernandez out of having any deciding calls behind the plate in a playoff game, that's a positive thing for baseball. And I think every fan from any fan base can agree on that. How about we jump into some semi-free agency news? Obviously, we can't have any real free agency news, but maybe the biggest player at the top of um, the biggest player in baseball who's not signed yet, probably at the top of a lot of teams' big boards, is Carlos Correa, who has been in the news um, for a couple of reasons in the past week, week or so, and that's because one, he hired a new agent, which you know, isn't, isn't the biggest deal in the world, but he hired Scott Boris as his agent, who's currently the agent of Corey Seager, uh, Marcus Simeon, and Max Scherzer, who all signed monsters, monster deals this offseason. Obviously, Seager and Simeon with the Texas Rangers, and Max Scherzer with the New York Mets. And so, prior to the lockout, um, rumors have come out in the past couple days that Carlos Correa was asking for between 330 and $350 million dollars prior to the lockout. So this is about on the range of uh, Francisco Lindor, who got a little bit of a bigger contract, but played the same position. Um, So a big contract for a big name player like Carlos Correa, who's obviously performed very well in the infield and at the plate. And so it's unclear how the lockout will really affect his asking price, but this new agent hire seems to assume that he's still looking for big money. He still thinks he deserves a massive contract, which I know you disagree, but I think he deserves a big contract. Well, for the, before I get into my long diatribe of why Carlos Correa does not deserve that contract, nor does he deserve to play in Major League Baseball, I want to first touch on Scott Boris, who normally agents is just kind of a, the underbelly of baseball or of any sport. You're not really talking about them. Scott Boris is so good at his job that even most casual baseball fans know the name. The dude is just famous for walking into MLB teams and just milking them, absolutely milking them, signing ridiculous deals. That's what he does. Um, I know Carlos Correa was asked why the change um, in his representation or his management, uh, and he declined the comment. You know, and I can answer that for him. He wants more money. Who doesn't? I mean, that's the thing. He's let me hire the best guy at getting people paid. I want to go get paid. Now, is Carlos Correa the best player left? I would argue no. Um, I'd say Freddie Freeman is a better player. There's a fair argument there. I personally have many qualms with Carlos Correa, notably uh, that he cheated uh, and was part of the largest cheating, organized cheating scandal in baseball in over 100 years. So if I'm a team, one, that's not 
the precedent I want to set. I don't think going for more cheating is better than less cheating. And then I also like, yes, he's great at the plate, but like, how do we count? Like, I don't know. I'm thinking if you, if you give me the trash can setup, I might hit for 380. I just might. I mean, if you, if you know to sit on a curveball, honestly, looking back, it's kind of crazy that those Astros players all weren't batting 400 or above. Kind of a testament to how good major league pitchers are that they could know the pitch that was coming and still could only hit it 29% of the time. That's crazy. Still able to win the World Series. They did not win a World Series. Not legitimately. <laughs> um, no, I do, kid. They they won that uh, World Series, and they needed it. Uh, the only like silver lining to that, obviously, is the boy, Mabin, getting a ring. Um, big win for the podcast, as he's one of our loyal followers. But, yeah, I mean, for Carlos Correa, <laughs> he's, he's going to go get a huge bag. We all he know will. it. He will. He's going to get paid ridiculously. As much as I personally have a vendetta against him and all Astros from that era, He's very, very good at baseball. He plays a premium position. It's kind of a perfect storm right now coming out of the lockout. There's going to be some traction there. He's a high-end guy to sign right when the CBA goes, and now Scott Boris is there. You think he pushes into the $400 million range with Scott no, Boris? No, I, I don't think he'll get up to the $400 million range. I don't think there's really any chance. I think, I think he'll stay – Around probably what Corey Seager got, who's also uh, whose agent is also Scott Boris. Corey Seager signed for ten years, three twenty-five. Uh, Correa is asking for a little bit more, and you know maybe he'll get a little bit more. It depends on where he's going, who's willing to pay. But um, it's also important to know that Boris also represents Chris Bryant and Nick Castellanos, who are both still outstanding free agents. Probably also going to get big contracts. I mean, shout out Scott Boris. He's going to make a lot of money. Yeah, that, it's that simple. Carlos Correa, go chase your bag, man. And please, dear God, stop teaching kids that cheating is the correct way to win in life. And how about one? So we got one more topic. Uh, this is also news from today. Um, our last kind of current news topic before we jump into our second installment of the Bad Boys of Baseball. Uh, and this is the MLB axing the deal that the Tampa, Ray, Tampa Bay Rays were pursuing to split their season between Tampa Bay and Montreal. Um, and so this was a plan that the Tampa Bay Rays have been working on for, for quite some time. Uh, they spent two and a half years on the project and were expecting approval to proceed uh, with efforts to get open-air stadiums built in both Tampa Bay and Montreal. And the Rays also sought approval from the Players Union. And so, you know, though the final details remained uh, kind of up in the air and to be worked out, the basic idea of the plan was to have the Rays play their spring training games in the first two months of the season in Tampa Bay, wherever they were to build this new stadium. Um, because the, the idea was that they'd move away from Tropicana Field because it's not optimal for the city and let, for many reasons that we'll get let into. Me, let me just jump in before we go further. Tropicana Field is the worst field in the MLB. It's the worst venue in the MLB. I have been there. It is just, it, it, it's terrible. Uh, for for as good as the Rays have been over this last five-year stretch and contending for World Series and being there and winning the AL East year after year, they play in what, this disgusting dome where the ceiling falls in sometimes and nearly kills center fielders. And you can hit home runs if you just smash the roof of the dome. I mean, it's ludicrous. It's terrible. 
they deserve better. Just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, and, and the Rays are continually at one of the bottom rankings in the MLB for attendance. And I, that has nothing to do with fans of Tampa Bay sports um, not liking the Rays. It just has to do with Tropicana Field not only being um, not a great stadium, but also it's not really in the Tampa Bay area. It's it's hard to get to. It's There's not a lot of parking. It's difficult for people in Tampa Bay to actually get there. So there's a lot of reasons why attendance have been down. And so they felt this would be a cool way to kind of um, – Try to try to get two different cities involved, both in Montreal and Tampa Bay. And the decision that the MLB made to axe this deal really stunned a lot of the team officials in Tampa Bay. You know, like I said, they they spent two and a half years on this project, hoping that they'd be able to do it. Um, and now it's creating even more uncertainty about the team's long term future in 2028. Um, because that's when the contract with Tropicana Field expires at the end of the 2027 season. And so now if they're wanting to move on from Tropicana Field and build another stadium in Tampa Bay, they really need plans in place as soon as 2023, which is only a year away. Yeah, I think a couple different things to touch on here. Um, So, yeah, once that lease agreement's up, it's going to be interesting – to see if they even try, if there's not the effort made to help publicly fund this stadium, you know, what they do is they try to force moving, fake going to a different expansion market. Um, just for context for everyone, obviously the podcast hasn't uh, blown up like crazy, so I still have a day job. Uh, and in that day job, I build stadiums, uh, which is very fun. But just to say the craziest part of this whole deal is that they thought they could build, they could actually afford to build two different stadiums um, or have them publicly. I mean, it is hard enough to secure one stadium. They've been trying to do it just in Tampa Bay for nearly a decade. So to think like, no, 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 we'll build one in Tampa and then also one in Montreal in a different country is kind of very ambitious in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that's true, but they also had this plan ready to go. They were working with a major investor in Montreal who was willing to finance it, and they were looking at places in Tampa Bay where they were going to build one, and that's still where they're trying to do one because they want to stay in Tampa Bay. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it is ambitious trying to get two new stadiums built for one team. And it's also interesting from a fan perspective. A lot of people were against it because, you know, you only get your team for half the year, some people were like, well, if we don't get you all the time, then I don't want you at any of the time, which, you know, you can kind of see. If, you, if you're a fan of Tampa Bay baseball and now all of a sudden your team's playing half the time somewhere else, um, it, it's, it's not great from a fan's perspective. You don't get to see your team as much, and it's not like Tampa Bay and Montreal are close. They're in different countries. Um, so... It's it's weird that this was on the table, but they really wanted it, and they were very surprised by the MLB deciding to axe it. Yeah, and it it just really is when you actually start to unpack it. It's such a crazy proposal. I mean, you're a huge Cardinals fan, Max. Could you imagine if the Cardinals played their first two months in Las Vegas? Like just <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just like, what do you mean? Where we're not leaving Tampa, but we're only playing near half a season. And then, like, what do players do? Get an apartment for four months in Montreal and three months in Tampa Bay and then have their house and wherever they're from? I mean, it's just a very weird system. Um, I would suggest they just 
build a really nice stadium in Tampa, seeing as they're one of the best teams. It's a great market. Don't build a dome in Florida. I know it's hot. Utilize that great weather. Get people out there. If the Miami Marlins can sell tickets, so can the Rays. It's crazy from a player's perspective, too. Like you said, like, you're you're now you're just supposed to have a home in two places, I guess. Like, are your kids going to move with you? Are they going to, like, I don't know. It's, there's, there's a lot of variables from a player's perspective that make it not, seem like the right thing to do. I mean, hopefully they would give these players a big bonus if they're going to really split their time in two different cities and two different countries. Now, and, and, you know, one thing that I want to touch on is the Montreal side of it, because I think it's weird enough to split the two cities, but it's why is Montreal, Canada, you know, why do they want a team? So Bob Nightingale actually just sent out a tweet this week talking about how the MLB's two highest prioritized target expansion markets are Nashville, Tennessee, and Montreal. Uh, the one thing I do want to point back to, if you guys want to re- rewind uh, and listen to, I can't even remember what episode we did our wish list on, but my wish list expansion team was Montreal. So I guess it's kind of sad because I was going to maybe half get that wish and it's gone. Of course, Montreal was a thriving baseball market uh, with the Expos, who then left and moved to Washington, D.C. They are currently the Nationals. Um, So there is a market there. I think it would probably be good to continue the international exposure, having the Blue Jays uh, and then a team in Montreal. But we'll see. Montreal is going to have to wait another day, and Tampa Bay is going to have to figure out a different solution. Uh, And hopefully you keep them in the Bay. I can't imagine something that would be as bad as, you know, when a team – is moved. It's not fun. Yeah, we'll have to see. I mean, they'll at least be there until 2027. Um, I mean, hopefully for the people of Tampa Bay, they, they keep their team. But there there's a lot on the table right now. I, I think I saw a quote that said, there, there's nothing on the table and everything's on the table at the same time. So we'll have to we'll have to see what what they decide to do with the Rays. Um, so I'm ready to jump into the bad boys of baseball. Are you, are you ready to do this? Yeah, let's do it. Let's. Uh, we're finished up with the news grab bag. So, of course, tell us uh, how you felt about the news and anything you can always connect with us. Rounding third now on Twitter. It's rounding third now, 3RD. But with that being said, we are definitely stoked to be jumping back into a segment that we love, um, the bad boys of baseball, as you said, kind of talking about some characters in baseball who – have a a great career, a storied past, blend of both. I'll let you take it from there, Max. Yeah, so episode one, we covered Barry Bonds, maybe maybe the most notable bad boy of baseball of all time. And today we might be doing the second most. We're going to talk about Roger Clemens. So I think how we're going to do this is I'm basically going to walk through his story, his playing career, front to back, and then kind of talk about the controversy. And James is going to jump in, provide his feedback as we go. But it should be good. I think this is an opportunity to kind of highlight a major player in the story of baseball. And and hopefully, you know, you can learn something from it, um, just from a baseball historian perspective, and and enjoy it. So I'm going to jump right into it. So Roger Clemens... Um, was born in Dayton, Ohio. He lived in Ohio until he attended high school in Houston, Texas. He was actually scouted by the Phillies and Twins as a senior in high school, but uh, didn't want to go straight to the MLB and seemingly made a good choice to not to. He went to San Jacinto College North in Houston just for his first year where he went 9-2. and two. Um, And then the Mets 
actually selected him 12th overall in the 1981 draft, but he didn't sign, instead choosing to go to the University of Texas, where in two All-American seasons, he went 25-7 and and won the 1983 College World Series. He's the first player to have his number retired at Texas. He also, uh, in 2004, they renamed the Rotary, the Rotary Smith Award, which is given to America's best college baseball player, to the Roger Clemens Award, um, honoring his career at Texas. He pitched 35 consecutive scoreless innings while at Texas, which was a record that stood until 2001 when it was broken. And so eventually he did go to the draft. He was selected 19th overall in the 1983 draft by the Boston Red Sox and quickly became a major pitcher in the MLB. Um, He made his MLB debut on May 15th, 1984. And in 1986, only two years later, he won the American League MVP as a pitcher, finished 24-4, and had a 2.48 ERA, and 238 strikeouts. He won his first of seven Cy Young Awards and was the All-Star at All-Star Game MVP uh, after throwing three perfect innings and two Ks and was and struck out 20 batters in one game. Um, he would end up doing this twice in his career, which is a record for most strikeouts in the game of nine innings. But to strike out 20 batters out of 27 that you face to get three outs in nine innings is pretty remarkable. And in that 1986 year, they lost to the Mets in the World Series. But, but what a way to start your career. I mean, you're drafted middle of the year 1984. And by 1986, you're Cy Young MVP, All-Star Game MVP. And you make it to the World Series where you lose to the Mets. Pretty Quite great cool. way to start your career. I was going to say that. Within a matter of three years from his draft date, he already had a career better than 95% of any pitcher to ever live. <laughs> right. Think about that. I mean, that just blows my mind. And I want to highlight that 1986 season real quick, which, of course, would be two years after making his debut, which in itself, that's a feat, right? Less than one full year after being drafted, he made an MLB debut. That doesn't happen. That just does not happen. If you look everywhere across the board, um, that's just not happening anymore. And then that 86 season, I mean, to win an MVP as a pitcher is an incredible feat. 24 and four, two, four, eight. I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing. Yeah. And it, it, it really only goes up from here. So the next season, 1987, the Red Sox have a bad year. They're, they're under 500, under, under 500, but Roger Clemens wins his second consecutive Cy Young going 20 and nine with a 2.97 ERA. 256 strikeouts and seven shutouts. Um, And so his career continues to progress. He loses the ALCS in both the 1988 and 1990 seasons. Um, In 1990, he finished second in the Cy Young, despite having um, a lower ERA, more strikeouts, less walks, uh, less home runs allowed, and a much higher wins above replacement than Bob Welch, who won it. So maybe he should have got... um, Another Cy Young there. So he wins his third Cy Young in 1991. um, And he signs a four-year, $40 million deal with the Toronto Blue Jays, deciding to move on from the Red Sox, where he spent his career up to this point. Um, And so after that 1996 season, Clemens uh, is now a member of the Toronto Blue Jays. And he was dominant in his two seasons that he did end up spending in Toronto. He signed a four-year deal, but he ended up 
uh, requesting a trade because the Blue Jays weren't, uh, you know, contending for titles, which he wanted to do. But in his two years after leaving Boston and joining the Toronto Blue Jays, he won the pitching triple crown both years and won a Cy Young both years before being traded to the Yankees um, just before the 1999 season. And so in 1999, he wins the World Series with the Yankees. In 2000, he wins the World Series again with the Yankees. And in 2001, Clemens becomes the first pitcher in MLB history to start a season 20-1. and He ended up finishing 20-3, and and he wins his sixth Cy Young Award. And so now in 2003, so we talked about that 86 season. So this is now 17 years later. He's won six Cy Youngs, two World Series, um, has an amazing career up to this point, and he decides that it's time to retire, effective at the end of the 2003 season. And so on June 13, 2003, pitching against the, the Cardinals in Yankee Stadium, he records his 300th career win and 4,000th career strikeout, the only player in history to record both milestones in the same game, which is kind of just more, more of a coincidence than any matter of skill. <laughs> I also... Just want to say he's probably uh, in a short list, a handful of players to just accomplish both feats. Yeah, for sure. Oh, for sure. You're talking best of the best. And then he, um, after the 2003 season, he does what he ends up doing three times in his career, which is coming out of retirement. And so in 2004, he joins the Houston Astros, where he's now 42 years old, but wins his seventh Cy Young Award. And he says he's done after the season, ends up coming back for the Astros in 2005, and has maybe his best season yet. He has a 1.87 ERA, the lowest in the major leagues, and the lowest of his 22-season career, and the lowest by any National League pitcher since Greg Maddox in 1995. Um and he only finished with a 13 and 8 record, but that's primarily due to the fact that he ranked almost at the bottom in all of the major leagues in run support. So you can't really get wins if your team's not putting up uh, runs. And so then he retires again. But mid-2006 season, he comes back again out of retirement. And this time, um, he finishes the season 7-6, and a 2-3 ERA, a whip at just over 1. Um, but but was kind of, you know, couldn't pitch as far in the games. He, his average was just under six innings, and he never pitched in the eighth all season. Um, and then finally, at 44 years old, he joins the Yankees and becomes one of only three pitchers to pitch his entire career in the live ball era and reach 350 wins, joining uh, Warren Spann and Greg Maddox. So from 1986 to 2007, you have this pitcher who's just putting up unbelievable numbers. Seven Cy Youngs, uh, won an AL MVP, 11-time All-Star, two-time World Series champ, two-time Triple Crown, uh, 24 seasons in the league, third all-time in career strikeouts at 4,672, and uh, set the record for most players struck out in one game, in one nine-inning game, and he did it twice. So, I mean, these are all-time numbers. I mean, how can you argue with any of this? But Roger Clemens remains out of the MLB Hall of Fame, and with only one more year possible to get in by writer voting, it does not seem very likely that he will end up 
end up getting in unless the Veterans Committee allows him in in the years to come. And why is that? Well, there, there are kind of a lot of reasons, the main being his alleged steroid use. And so Clemens was alleged by the Mitchell Report to have used anabolic steroids during um, his career, mainly based on testimony given by his former trainer, Brian McNamee, who also accused um, Andy Pettit of using steroids. And there's also a book written by Jose Consenco, whether you believe this is true or not. He also alleged that there were multiple conversations with Roger Clemens and with Pettit and all these other players about using steroids. Now, Clemens firmly denies these allegations under oath before the U.S. and United States Congress, leading congressional leaders to refer his case to the Justice Department on suspicions of perjury, because you also have Andy Pettit, who made claims about conversations he had with Clemens about steroids, and he made these claims under oath, and then Clemens refutes them under oath, so someone's not telling the truth. Um, and so on August 19, 2010, a federal grand jury at the United States District Court in D.C. indicted Clemens on six felony counts involving perjury, false statements, and contempt of Congress. Clemens pleaded not guilty, but proceedings were complicated by prosecutorial misconduct leading to a mistrial. And the verdict from the second trial came in June 2012, when Clemens was ultimately found not guilty on all six counts of lying to Congress. But this wasn't the only thing that kind of put Clemens um, kind of in the negative spotlight. There were also countless accusations of adultery by, by many people, including a possible long-term relationship with country music singer Min Mindy McCready that began when she was 15 years old. Now, Clemens' attorney denied this affair and also stated that Clemens would be bringing a defamation lawsuit regarding this allegation. Um, and it ends up kind of getting cleared up, but Clemens described McCready as a close family friend. He also stated that McCready had traveled on Clemens' personal jet and that Clemens' wife was aware of their relationship. However, when McCready was contacted by the Daily News about the story that came out in the New York Daily Post, she said, quote, I cannot refute anything in the story. And so uh, in 2008, McCready spoke in more detail to Inside Edition about her affair with Clemens, saying their relationship lasted for more than a decade. Um, and it ended when Clemens told McCready that he would not leave his wife to pursue a relationship with her. Now, she denied that she was 15 years old when she began and also saying that they didn't have sex until she was 21 because eventually the sex tape leaks of them. Um, and this affair between them started um, much later, several years later after they met when she was 15. Um, but that wasn't the only time he was accused of adultery. Um, there was also a report that he had an extramarital affair with uh, Paulette Dean Daly, who's the wife of uh, pro golfer John Daly. Uh, and, and she uh, declined to elaborate on the nature of her relationship with the pitcher, but did not deny that it was romantic and included financial uh, support. And there have also been reports of at least three other affairs with women throughout his career. And, and this isn't saying that this should, uh, you know, prevent you from getting in the Hall of Fame or any of this should, but this, along with accusations of being diva-like, people claiming that him coming out of retirement over and over was all this kind of draw for attention for himself, 
He also was known to throw at batters. He had one of the highest um, hit batter rates in all of baseball. So he did kind of appear as this diva-like figure, despite having, you know, one of the top resumes in all of Major League Sports. So that kind of breaks down the whole story. So that's his career front to back, and then why writers and, and people haven't been allowing him into the Hall of Fame for years, and why he's kind of got this negative reputation throughout the league. So, so James, I want to jump to you here. Like, What do you feel about the story? How do you feel about Roger Clemens? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple different things to unpack. First of all, thank you for that, uh, the telling of that narrative. Um, but I'll, I will also go ahead and say the career, I almost want to evaluate it as two separate things because the career in itself is jaw-dropping. It's nothing short of jaw-dropping. Um, I mean, he just, one of the best pitching careers that's ever happened. The adultery stuff I'll take as a separate thing. I'm not a fan of it. I don't think that's probably how you should behave. However, I do not think your sex life should have any bearing on the Baseball Hall of Fame. I think the Baseball Hall of Fame is simply a collection of the greatest baseball players to ever play. Now, to me, the steroid thing gets a little more interesting. I'm a little more liberal on the Hall of Fame in terms of like, yeah, guy was great. Who, you know, if the juice was there, the juice may have happened. Like maybe we could put him in like the corner of the Hall of Fame or a special room in the Hall of Fame, like the juice room. But it's also interesting because if he was cleared by the U.S. Justice Department and they said all of his charges of perjury and lying were cleared, I mean, it's it's hard to hold that against him if we're saying that's the only real substantive proof is that he was accused of, of lying when he said that he didn't do it. And then they said, well, he wasn't lying. We did that. Of course, there's one thing between being found legally guilty or not guilty and then actually doing or not doing said crime. It's hard to know there. Um, I do think your point that you have to remember in some ways it is a popularity contest. So him being a diva, him retiring all the time, throwing at batters, which by the way, did they deserve it? It's a big question. Um, but with all that going on, there's some elements to evaluate, but I think it's pretty safe to say he's not getting into the Hall of Fame in a traditional sense. If anything, he's going to have to get a historical committee, um, which overall makes me think a lot of the, that era, the juice era, if you will, your Mark McGuire, your Sammy Sosa, all of that. Will the historical committee, because of the context around baseball, treat that any differently? But regardless of that, Roger Clemens, one of the best pitching careers ever, and pretty much a lock to not make the Hall of Fame in the traditional sense this next summer. Yeah, I mean, it is similar to the the Barry Bond story. You know, somebody who puts up just stat after stat after stat of, of, of just pure dominance in the MLB, but is left out of um, the Hall of Fame because of steroids, because, you know, he might have been rude to people and not the best guy to be around. But you're still looking at somebody who was pretty much better than anybody in his sport and was able to maintain a level of excellency for almost 24 years. Um, so it's, it's this weird dynamic. And, and I think the writers have clearly shown where they stand on these issues. They don't want players in the Hall of Fame who cheated in any way, which is fair. I mean, you can't really argue with that. I mean, you don't want players who, who didn't follow the rules. But like you said, there's a certain context you have to consider 
um, with a lot of these players and the fact that everybody might have been doing it at the time. And so, you know, it's, it's really hard to judge. I would imagine that a lot of these players like Clemens, like Kurt Schilling, like Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, these players may end up getting into the Hall of Fame at some point because of veteran committee inclusion or something of that nature. But it, it is, it, it, and I'm with you on the adultery stuff. You know, that's that's kind of a separate discussion because it's really unrelated to baseball entirely. But it, it was a major kind of highlight or low light in, in his career that did get a lot of a media draw for a long time. Yeah, and I think, you know, for the Hall of Fame conversation, we almost need to start to set a parameter because I see the Hall of Fame as this is the collection of guys that you cannot tell the story of baseball in America and Major League Baseball without these guys. And I think unequivocally you cannot tell these story of Major League Baseball without Roger Clemens. So, but it, like you said, the writers, I think, have a different perception of of the Hall of Fame than I do. They think, you know, these are the guys that need to tell the story, but we want to tell a story of baseball as pure and clean and all that. In my opinion, that's not the reality. Baseball is not pure and clean. It's dirty. There's grime. Right. I mean, this is a whole segment of players just like this that we're starting. It's the reality of baseball is that you have these guys that have these controversies. It's why we created a segment to talk about these characters. So I think if you're going to tell the story of baseball, you need to tell it accurately. Uh, That would be my own addition, kind of separate from the Roger Clemens thing, just looking at large. Yeah, and I like what you said about how you can't really tell the story of baseball without mentioning some of these guys that we're talking about, and specifically Roger Clemens. I mean – you can't really talk about the best pitchers in all of baseball without talking about Roger Clemens. You can't talk about the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry without talking about Roger Clemens. So he played a major integral role for baseball for 24 years, winning seven Cy Youngs. It's it's really this interesting debate, and it's it's unlike a debate that's in any other sport, right? You don't, you don't have such widespread steroid use that's as controversial mixed with the Hall of Fame that's extremely selective. So it's, it's kind of this weird, weird, um, weird situation, weird situation for players like Roger Clemens. Um, and, and I think there are two sides to the story. I, I think you did a good job capturing one, and I think the writers clearly show where they stand. So we'll see if a change ever occurs in the, um, in the Hall of Fame. I'm not saying there should be, um, and I certainly don't condone any steroid use or cheating, but I think it's hard to deny that Roger Clemens was an extremely talented pitcher who was able to excel at the top of his league and at the top of his sport for a very long time um, and may or may not have been able to do so. But like, like you said, um, he never – tested positive and he was never found guilty but that doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen yeah i think i think that's a really hard part of this story and then of course i know the allegations are that this was all later in his career um and i wonder from his own now looking back and realizing that he's snubbed from the hall of fame and i have to think that if if you took all the baseball problems aside and it was just, do we let this guy in? He has an MVP, two World Series, seven Cy Youngs, all these records, and he 
continues to cheat on his wife. I don't think there's any question there. So I wonder if it's like, okay, if he, if, if he really did take this juice, take the steroids so that he could do his second and third stint out of his fake retirements and get two more years tacked on, was that worth it? I, I mean, I would say no. Uh, right. Only he can answer that question. Well, it's an interesting story. I mean, it's an amazing career. Um, but I, I think that about covers it for the, the second installment of the Baddest Boys of Baseball. I like this segment. I think it's good to kind of talk about the history of the game, talk about these unique players. But you have anything else to add on that? No, I think that's, uh, you know, it's an important segment, I think, because someone's got to tell that story. But, uh, yeah, let us know. What do you think of the Roger Clemens? You know, should it be in? Should it be out? Um, where do you sit on that? Again, rounding third now. Interact with us live on Twitter. We're there all week. Uh, rounding third, three RD. Um, so, yeah, I mean, overall, I think that's the Clemens. We're excited. Let us know who you want next in the next time we do Bad Boys of Baseball. Um, and let us know how you felt about today's pod. Yeah, I think that wraps it up for episode seven. You know, it was another fun episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys. Um, we're able to, you know, learn a little bit about the Roger Clemens story and keep up to date with the current news. Hopefully you made it this far in the episode. Um, well, we'll be back next Friday, episode eight. Hopefully uh, the talks on Monday go well and, you know, maybe we'll have baseball back. I doubt it, but a lot can happen in a week. Fingers crossed, baseball fans. Fingers crossed. <laughs>